It is Sunday, December 13th, uh, 2015, and uh, Film Cult is gathered yet again to do a fan commentary for the David Cronenberg Masterpiece Videodrome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are paused about a second into the uh, star field of the Universal logo, so we'll give you some time to get queued up there. Okay, plenty of time. Uh, hitting play in three, two, one. Play. Welcome to Videodrome. This is, uh, oh yeah, by the way, uh, Round Robin, I guess, starting with the Pink Lady. Who are we all? I'm the Pink Lady. I'm Michelle Davis, the Davis of the Michelles. <coughs> and I am Ron Lee. Willie Greer? My name's Michelle, and uh, I like Twizzlers, and my favorite movie is Blood My Videodrome's special name is Damon, and that's also my <laughs> real name. <laughs> and uh, Dan, Dan up in uh, Seattle. So Videodrome here is um, kind of the final product of this glorious, brief golden age uh, in the 80s where Universal kind of jumped in with both feet in the exploitation genre. Um, After the success of Jaws in 75, changed the game, Uh, Fox responded in 77 with Star Wars, 79 with Alien, and then everyone was getting in on the whole Roger Corman B-movie dressed up as an A-movie game. Um... And also picking up some B-movies. Paramount picked up Friday the 13th in 80, and it was a raging success. And uh, they also got My Bloody Valentine. Fox picked up Terror Train. And then Universal decided to spend shitloads of money on very sexy, very violent films, starting with um, oh, The Fun House and Halloween 2 in 1981. Then they gave us Death Valley and uh, John Carpenter's remake of The Thing, Paul Schrader's remake of Cat People in 82, and American Werewolf in London was also in 81. Sorry, I almost forgot about that. Which is practically a remake of The Wolfman. And then lastly, in 83, uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome. And it uh, didn't do that well. And I think that kind of signaled the end for them investing movies, money in, in these kind of movies for a while. But damn, it oh, was a glorious period. Sorry? Oh, sorry. Yeah, th- thanks for that history. That's really... Yeah, it's awesome. Oh, these things are important um, to me. Yeah, to me as well. I um, I just wanted to comment real quick that that her uh, wake up call there to him I thought was super interesting. It kind of harkened back to me like a uh, um, uh, some tropes in sci fi with uh, Star Trek and maybe Hal and you know these him kind of being in a spaceship here and, and communicating, you know, with the with the mothership or the home planet mm-hmm. or something. There was just some something like sci fi about something. You know, obviously, there's a lot of sci fi elements to this film, but I, I really like that image. If yeah. I may, also, we made a. Pointed oh, don't let all everybody talk at reference once. Reference in there. <laughs> a pointed what? Sorry, reference? she did a very pointed winky number twenty three reference in there. What on mm. earth is that? Oh, uh, the number twenty three pops up a lot. I'm oh. not sure where it started. Um, it may have been Robert Anton Wilson, but it's if you Robert Anton Wilson, a, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's it's flooded a lot of things, especially Star Trek. It pops up a lot, but in a lot of places. I thought winky had something to do with that. Sorry, no, it's just she was making it obvious she was doing that gotcha sorry michelle rainier what did you want to say i forgot <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, real quick too when they pulled away from her shot there was a couple paintings right by the tv that looked very like uh george o'keefe-ish very kind of um organic vaginal mm-hmm. yes vaginal thank you <laughs> a little subtle for max wren don't you think
I love this scene. You know, getting the media in the seedy hotel room. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, and I love the uh, whole communication by videotape. Um, it's some weird combination of sending letters and Skyping. Well, there was so much paranoia around uh, home video when this movie came out, too. It was uh, it was sort of seen as, you know, the sleazy, you know, Times Square porno theaters seeping into people's houses. And uh, this was sort of, you know, I think it was David Cronenberg's reaction to that, you know, showing like the, the very worst that could happen. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, it was two years after this that the uh, that Britain passed that um, the video oh, yeah, recordings the, bill. The video nasties, yeah. Yeah. So Cronenberg uh, said that all of the sort of Asian ritual stuff around this bit here is just shitty made up. And I loved, like, the Miyazaki-inspired dildo. That's just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. well, that, well, interestingly, that was cut. Um, the MPA cut that, and that's that gets into a lot of the censorship things that um, Cronenberg talks about, but we, we can talk about that later. That that was one scene that was cut. Yeah, he said in a, an interview that I saw that basically all of his films up to this point had originally gotten X ratings, and he had to do things. Yeah, the Canada censor board was pretty freaking vicious too. Like once they well, it was actually that the American censor board that he had to cut it okay. cut that for. So, so they were when they teamed up with Universal, they had to make sure it was going to pass the MPAA. So it got cut. Yeah, it was interesting. The, the difference he pointed out was that in America they would give you the option of having in an X, and in Canada they would just cut your film and then put you in jail if you showed it. Not quite the utopia we always thought Canada was. Yes, um, but he also talked a lot about you know the benefits of having government financing um, for the arts there. So. There's good, there's bad. What are you going to do? Well, definitely went a long way to making these films. So this was the last film to be made on the, um, the Cronenberg made, made on the, the Canadian tax loophole system. So this and the couple films before this were, were all made with the, um, so there was a tax loophole that, you, that people get to have write-offs if they invested in film. Interestingly enough, yeah, this is um, definitely kind of a com- companion piece to Scanners. I would call Scanners, Videodrome, and Existence, uh, Cronenberg's Conspiracy Trilogy. But mm. they were also shot very much the same way in that uh, the end of the year was rolling around and if they wanted to get those investors, they had to get into, get into production immediately. And uh, in both cases, uh, he had to start shooting before the final script was finished and just kind of finish the rest as he went along. And in both those films, I think it, it kind of shows for me you know, um, I, I thoroughly enjoy them, but there's something about the scripts that feels a little bit rushed, or at the very least not thought through. Like if he had a little bit more of a chance to rewrite this and maybe scanners, there could have been more that tied so the whole things together. Well, he so was, do you feel that way with this film, Willie? A little bit. I feel like mm-hmm. some of the twists that come at the end are a little bit arbitrary. You know, like they're not glaring, but I don't know if they. Um, that's hard to explain. Well, it was. No, go for it. He was doing all of that very last minute. Yeah. Um. And and yeah. really didn't know where he wanted things to go. I mean, and well, we can probably talk more about that when moments like that come up. For sure. I mean, out of the three, I think for me, existence actually feels the most thought through. 
The original, yeah, I, the original draft he wrote of this was really, really over the top to the point where he said it was actually a film he wouldn't have even wanted to watch. <laughs> um, but that's how he got both James Woods and Debbie Harry signed on, was based on that script. Um, yeah, and, and also and Rick Baker. Way back. Right. Well, and it's funny, too, if you, if you look at Existence compared to the other two movies, the other two movies are all about fetishizing... Um, you know, fetishizing the media itself. And by the time Existence rolled around, the media was so overtaken by digital, he had to invent an entirely new technology just to go back to that that fetish <laughs> because it it just didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people were jacking into these, you know, just basically, you know, butterball turkeys with tentacles, you know. <laughs> and uh, that's so hot. So hot. I'm going to go get a turkey right now. <laughs> I want to back up real quick. Um, the whole opening to the scene here with the antenna spinning around was, um, so that was one of the early inspirations when he was a kid. They used to have a a turnable antenna. And when all the major Canadian TV shows would sign off for the night, they would pick up frequencies from, um, you know, south of the border from, from the U.S. And you get these, like, images without sound and just these weird images and uh, had a huge effect on him as a kid. And that, that was one of the impetuses for, for the film. Hmm. Yeah. I think he, he said he was always an- anxious that he would uh, wind up seeing something that he wasn't supposed to see. We were never so lucky. I don't think I tried to watch some scrambled porn once when I was a kid and never really worked out. <laughs> we, had, we had bootleg cable. So a lot I of my, I saw the occasional actual breast. I was pretty excited. It yeah. took a lot of patience. <laughs> yes. A lot of, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Debbie Harry. Yes. Yes. I love well, I love her in this movie and I love this character. She's uh just kind of so full of contradiction. You know, um she comes on the show and says that she feels that the the state of over overstimulation that everyone lives in is a bad thing and then in the next breath says that she lives there too. Um in her her day job, she you know, helps women get out of abusive relationships. Um, but in her own life, she's a totally self-destructive masochist. Um, even her job itself, she works on the radio where she's a disembodied voice, but she has that booth where she's kind of on display. There's a, a cutout window. And, yeah, I'd like uh, to, uh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Will, go for it. Your thought. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I just love the um, casting in general for the whole film. Absolutely. I, I think is amazing. Yeah, and so he like does this is, uh, wonderful things like casting uh, Marilyn Chambers in Rabbit, and I feel like this was kind of a similar experiment getting Deborah Harry to play Nikki. Well, I think that was more Ivan Reitman than... Oh, really? Cronenberg. Yeah, that was okay. that was kind of a calculated... Uh, Reitman told them if they were going to go to Cannes and sell it, that they had to have a name that, that you know a Spanish distributor would would recognize or, or would want to see. And I guess... Marilyn Chambers was was well known at that point. Yeah, it worked out pretty well for them. Yeah, but um, yeah, of course. Also, Cronenberg basically had to tell Deborah Harry is like you basically have to unlearn everything that you've learned in order to be a stage performer, uh, and be incredibly subtle. And yeah, that, I think that was a bit of a challenge for her, but she pulled it off pretty wonderfully. I think. Well, definitely. Show, I think he shows, um, you know, his work with actors that, that he. 
I think it went to another level on this film. You know, a lot, a lot of things went to another level, but certainly his work with actors did too. And can I just say, I know the band's name is Blondie and everything, and she kind of has to do it, but she's a stunning brunette, man. It doesn't matter what Agreed. color her hair is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bitch is fierce. So do you guys want to get into the whole um, Marshall McLuhan thing? Oh, hell yeah. Here? Most definitely. I've been into that for like the last five minutes, Dan. <laughs> I was hoping somebody would say something. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually um, did a little bit more uh, Cliff's Notes research on uh, on McLuhan in the last week or two for this commentary. And um, yeah, no, pretty amazing stuff. It's amazing how ahead of his time and how prescient he was. He's uh, most most famous for the phrase, the medium is the message, and uh, the concept of the global village, which is absolutely a reality today. Um, and yeah, the, the, the medium is the message that kind of has a cool alternate meaning, I think, here in, in Videodrome. Um, in that I think he, he compared, uh, he used the analogy of a light bulb. He's kind of saying that um, a light bulb was... Uh, it was a tool that made things possible and it didn't really matter what you did in it. It was more the fact that you had the freedom to do it. I'm kind of, I'm really paraphrasing here that made it important. And when he talked about video and television, uh, I think his, his theory was the same. So it didn't matter if you were showing violence or, or kids programming that the, the end result would ultimately be pretty much the same. And uh, in the case of Videodrome, it's not necessarily the, the the sexual and violent content that creates all the havoc. It opens up your nervous system to let in the kind of toxic tumor-inducing video signal, which I guess in this case would be the medium or or the message. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was it was so interesting to me is just his whole McLuhan's whole thing of how um, you know how communication technology how all of this affects us physically how it affects our cognitive organization but it also is an extension of our senses you know of our bodies and our minds and really thought those themes were interesting because um you know, obviously they're such big themes in in Cronenberg's universe I, I, I can see where McLuhan and he mentions McLuhan a few times and obviously um um uh, oblivion is is you know is supposed to be the stand-up for McLuhan, but he also talks about him in some of the interviews. And I think it was a huge influence on on his thought process and just, you know, the global village and turning into um, what McLuhan later said was the global theater and how we, like, create our, you know, create our present reality. Yeah, it's almost, like a, it's almost like a Marshall McLuhan, like, Lovecraft story <laughs> where, you know, yeah. the this, this, this stand-in for the ancient, dusty old tome is, like, this videotape that he finds. And, uh, it just unleashes this, you know, this hidden world that you know nobody can see until you know you're you're infected by it. <laughs> yeah, super, super interesting stuff. What's What's interesting though, but the the message in this is that you know the medium comes in and it overwhelms you and it makes you obsessive and it takes you over completely. And you look at this compared to you know the evolution the media has gone through in like the last 30 years and if anything it's almost the opposite you know the 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 medium weans you off of obsessiveness and it 
it turns you on to you know just randomly flipping around and and not you know focusing on any one thing whereas james woods in this becomes so like you know has this laser-like focus on the videodrome show uh, that it just it takes over his mind and it's almost like looking at it now it's almost like nostalgia <laughs> looking at a, yeah. you know, at this at this nightmare yeah. future which is actually pretty optimistic compared to what you know what medium has become in, in on the internet it's retro futuristic <clears throat> yeah. oh, just real quick if if uh Debbie Harry asks you to, if you want to try a few things the answer is uh yes <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> yeah this is uh i mean out of all of the uh i mean all the the Rick Baker effects obviously are magnificent and this is one of the most simple uh, and it's amazingly effective. It's very much like the thumb cutting scene in the thing, you know, to where like you can easily tell how it's done, but it doesn't make it any less squirmy. And for sure, and just to the power, you know, getting back to the power of practical effects are just always so mm. much more effective. So the just the last thing I want to. Um, well, maybe not the last thing, but another thing I want to say about McLuhan is um, towards he had some books later in his career, and one of them he was saying that uh, technology has taken over our evolution and is no longer the it is no longer the environment; it is our concepts, our technology, our minds that are doing it, which is just so Cronenberg. Oh, and also that uh, McLuhan went to University of Toronto, where at the time that Cronenberg attended. He never had any of his classes, but they were there at the same time, which I thought was interesting. Oh, wow. Did uh, I was out for a second. Did anybody point out that also the line is just as much the medium as the massage? <laughs> <laughs> we totally missed that. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> so there's this weird intimacy in the technology of this film. Um, like... Debbie Harry calling the uh, person who, well, her character calling the person who called in on the radio show Lover. Um, and sorry, they're having sex. I got distracted because <laughs> they're totally having sex right now. Um, and the sort of alert thing, the alarm thing for, for him, his character, it isn't a robot talking. It's a person on a video screen. Um, it's a much more like kind of intimate way of imagining the future of technology. Yeah. Even down to, um, just all the analog gear, you know, we've, we've, uh, left that behind pretty much completely and detached as it might be there, there is an undeniable warmth to it. Mm hmm. Yeah, getting well, just getting back to the McLuhan stuff for a second. Uh, for many years, anytime I ever hear one of my friends say, it's just a TV show, it makes me a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you don't like mystery science theater. <laughs> Repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. <laughs> you don't like mystery science theater, Ron? Not really, no. Wow, that surprises me. Yeah, I'm yeah. not really that into making fun of stuff, actually. Uh, I, I prefer to spend my time on stuff I actually really like. 
whatever. There was another show with the, the puppets sitting in front of the movies making gentle compliments about them. <laughs> no, I, I really don't like people talking during movies. Oh, really? It's this. No, I'm just robots that. being quiet. Yeah, you're, you're right, Everybody shut up. <laughs> Love her. Mm-hmm. I forget the actress's name, but. The original Cougar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cronenberg uh, said that this uh, woman reminded him of a lot of women he actually knew, you know, in Toronto that were kind of of a certain age, but, mm. you know, embraced her sexuality and just had a more European sensibility mm. to him. Mm. Which, of course, makes her vulnerable to the Freudian punishment that's later to come. <laughs> <laughs> And that Civic TV logo, you can just barely see at the corner of the TV there, the TV stand. I mean, like, it, it is so burned into my brain as an iconic logo. I, I love Cronenberg's branding universe. You know, it's almost as, as much a part of his films as the, uh, the body horror stuff. But uh, Ephemeral and the Institute of Psychoplasmics and Tana Electronics, um, <clears throat> it's all very, very memorable and gets to sidestep having to use well, even the name of the production things. company film plan yeah yeah no the, yeah the branding is or just the production design in general yeah so just curiously when did everyone first see this movie <laughs> um i might have been a teenager i'm not sure very young i'm glad teenager. you brought that up yeah I was probably 13 or 14 i think i honestly I think I was don't like 12 yeah yeah. Wow. Yeah, this this movie this is one that I watched Whoa. like over and over and over again when it was on Cinemax late at night. Mm. Totally. Uh, just because you know, any any time you turned it on, you were guaranteed to see something interesting. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I I had not seen it until last Sunday. What? Um, oh, no, wow. I never saw this, oh, and my and God. I cannot. It's impossible for me to know how this would have played for me mm-hmm. in 1982 or three. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea because it's hard for me to remember what I was if I would have just been so knocked out by all the weird shit. Because now, of course, I watch this movie and I'm just thinking everything he saw coming and it creeped me the fuck out. Um, and I was interested in other stuff, but that stuff isn't new in the way it would have been in that year and me at that age. Yeah, this was this movie was huge for me. Um, you know, I saw this in a friend's basement when I was fifteen or sixteen, and um, I'm glad you brought it up, Ron, because I, I wanted to talk about you know other the rest of you that have seen it. Um, you know, saw it earlier. So seeing it on like a crappy video cassette <laughs> yeah. when you're young, you know, and there's like a subversive nature of being in a, in a friend's basement. You know, a young, you know, you're watching something you feel like you shouldn't probably be watching anyway, mm-hmm. and then you have like the the media itself the, the crappy vhs quality so it was weird for me to see it clear like this but there's you felt like somehow you were participating in videodrome and in, in the mm-hmm. experiment itself just mm-hmm. by watching the, the tape <laughs> so the themes like were, were kind of kind of seeped out like that kind of like um when you watch the ring yeah you yeah. know or ringu yeah and you're, you're like, kind of afraid that the real. thing is gonna 
call you in a week dude yeah videodrome you're kind of afraid that it's gonna start hypnotizing you and you're gonna it's gonna the tv's literally gonna swallow you up thank god for (laughs) blu-ray we're totally safe Uh, yeah no that 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 totally happened to me the first time i saw ringu i rented it on a bootleg vhs Uh, Uh, you you just you just you you can't have a better you can't have a better setup for that and a week later did that and a week later i died yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) i I found myself listening a week later for the phone just kind of sitting there Mm -hmm. and noticing that i was freaking out listening for the phone I thought it was so great and so intriguing about this movie was that, you know, he Cronenberg sort of did everything the exact opposite of what you expected to see in just about every other genre movie at the time, because the main character is he's intentionally unlikable. You know, yeah. he's he's a sleazeball yeah. who will do like anything to get ahead and get what he wants. And mm-hmm. Debbie Harry is like she's a victim, but she's like a self-made victim. You know, she she wants to be victimized. And it's just, everything is just sort of like on its head, um, and you just you have no idea where it's heading. Um, mm. But you know, underneath it all, there's like this this hidden you know universe that is going to be uncovered by this tape. And at the time, I mean, you know, this was like pre-internet, pre-every you know everything that we sort of we take our, our perversion for granted today. You know, this is back when perversion was something special. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you know, you, do, you knew that this guy was hurtling headlong towards something. And, yeah. you know, it, even if you had seen it before and you knew what was coming, it, it was always, you know, mysterious and special. Uh, every Cronenberg film, it, it's especially during this time, is just so freakishly titillating. <laughs> it's- Oh, yeah. Scanners and even uh, Mm -hmm. Shivers. I mean, that was... Oh, God. (laughs) And Dead Ringers, which was a little later. But still, I think on the tail ends here. Yeah, Shivers is very titillating. (laughs) I got... um, Oh, yeah. uh, Because of this (laughs) movie, I've gone down the Cronenberg rabbit hole, and I'm going through every Uh, film in order. Um, So I watched Shivers and Rabbit this week, plus the two underground ones that came before that and uh oh, nice. yeah shivers is very arousing that end well he originally wanted to call it somebody can correct me i think it was something like blood orgy of the <laughs> orgy of the blood parasites yeah orgy of the blood parasites um and i mean it's full-on orgy absolutely <laughs> well yeah and i mean like um that's good you know I, I i would say that the if there's a a message or a philosophy behind these early body horror films it can be summed up by by shivers and if shivers has a message i think it's you'll enjoy it once it's in (laughs) 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 you know i mean um, a quote of cornerberg's to damon to your point he said he didn't care if a character is sympathetic or non-sympathetic he said that's hollywood it's more important for characters to be fascinating Mm. nice Mm. Very true, and and it's and this character is is almost like he's almost like the flip side, you know, dark version of uh, of Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. You know, the some of his lines that you know he he speaks in the in the film are like you know, uh, where he's basically excusing violence on on you know on screen by saying you know better better on TV than on the street, you know, and you know these were you know these were like the go to lines for any horror director of the time. Uh, and you could see that Cronenberg was sort of like, you know, channeling, you know, this part of himself through Max Wren. Um, 
Dude, that's profound. <laughs> How much do you think that was Cronenberg kind of wondering the question aloud about he, what he's doing? He did mm-hmm. say in the commentary that this was kind of an attempt to call himself out um, uh. by having a movie about violent media that that is harmful to its audience. Of course, he, he, he does also admit that he doesn't stack the deck against himself too much because um, the show itself is being created by an evangelical group who wants to wipe out the impure people mm. by uh, sending a subliminal tumor-inducing mm. signal. At least kind of there. There's a lot of this sort of sexuality and punishment stuff that goes on in Cronenberg films. It's really interesting. It's really, it's really Catholic, and it's really Freudian, and yes. yet I dig it. <laughs> this yeah, whole like I this dig whole it video, no one does it like just, he does. Brilliant. I love this. This is amazing. Yes. The cathode ray mission. Mm. There's another wonder, another wonderful example of Cronenberg's branding. Yeah, but this definitely mm. reminds me of that mm. um, that East Indian like dream laboratory and in Inception, where everyone's asleep in the basement. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, this is a little better, hmm. I think. East Indian Dream Lab. Oh, in, yeah. I don't know if they're in India. Oh, they're yeah. Yeah, I remember. Some Inception sucked. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, Existence is, is it was the, great, far, but it, the, the far superior version enough. of Inception. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a little bit more about, about Max Wren's character. The thing I like about him as well is um, he's basically, he's an executive. He's not a creative you know, but he's in this position where he can choose what art goes out over uh, his TV station. Mm-hmm. And he actually has <clears throat> several chances throughout the movie not to do this. You know, from that, that uh. meeting at the beginning with uh, the samurai porno. You know, you, you want to show something a little softer? No, thank you. Mm. And then uh, in the uh, restaurant with the belly dancer, uh, the older lady asks him if he wants to produce his own show, make his own art. And he says, mm. no, no. Mm. Um, so he's really a taste maker in some ways. Oh yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, just looking to, uh, appeal to, to freaks who are like him. His name is Max Wren. Of course he's, everyone knows he's named after, uh, the Wren Max motorcycle, which, uh, definitely implies a need for, um, adrenaline and stimulation. Mm. I did not know that. Nope, oh, yeah. Me neither. I didn't know that either. Yeah, no Cronenberg's a huge racing freak. You guys are talking about all kinds of shit I didn't know. <laughs> it's very educational. Yes, the next movie I'm going to watch is Fast Company, which I hear is awful, but I'm very excited to see it. Oh, I haven't seen that. You've heard it's awful? Okay, yeah, I haven't heard one thing or the other. I've always kind of ignored it. Huh. That's the, that was the one thing I was going to say about Cronenberg, though. Um even though he's not my favorite filmmaker, that still goes to Carpenter, who's made more than a few pieces of shit. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> I cannot believe um, the the luck that Cronenberg has had uh, over his career arc. I mean, I, I've, never I've, seen I've never seen a Fast piece Company. of shit that he's made. He hasn't made a bad film. Yeah, I really... It, and well, he was able to transcend the body horror genre in a totally organic way, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where he got to make a fucking period piece a Merchant Ivory-style repressed romantic story. Mm. Sorry. You mean the yeah. Freud and Young thing? Yeah. Yeah. So good. I yeah, no, I'm definitely interested in just his his career arc. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Just the way he came out. He was at the at the very beginning of the Canadian 
incentive. He got some of that first money, and then the tax loopholes came, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, luck luck is the residue of pursuit. I mean, you know that he's worked really hard. He's, but, uncompro- um, he's been uncompromising, isn't he? Yeah. But yeah, just to I, go to go from shivers to a dangerous method—that's just fucking absurd. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? What do you think they? Uh, what do you think they made of it? You know, because he was—he was one of the first, you know, Canadian filmmakers to really, you know, hit it big in that way. And you know, you think usually that sort of figure they expect to be representative of like you know the culture and the country what do you think the canadians were thinking about that at the time (laughs) oh fuck (laughs) yeah pretty much (laughs) (laughs) well he he got screwed after um tv's turning into a vagina you know i don't know why i'm making canadians sound like they're yeah which film was it sense (laughs) really was was it shivers um i think a canadian uh, you know, the Canadian Film Board invested in Shivers, and then one of the critics, um, you know, wrote this huge r- railed against it, saying this is where you know people's taxpayer money was going, and it was a, a there was a lot of fallout, and it cost him. He said it between a year and two year years of his career, you know, trying to get footing again to, to keep to get get the money to make the next film. Yeah, he said so that the, the that kind of the- that's where his that started his hate for critics. Yeah. The- there were people on the film board who still really liked him and they were actually trying to find a way to indirectly get money for rabid to him. And I can't remember exactly how that all came out, but they, 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 really they, uh, they cross collateralized it. So they, you know, they did what Hollywood does. They had a basket of films. Um, actually, I think it was that film in convoy. I think was the other film that actually fell through and, um, then they, they still supported him and helped him, helped him make the next one. But it, it was a it was a big deal. I can see that. It's a very incendiary movie that uh, that shivers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's a few things that happen. <laughs> but yeah, um, speaking of a dangerous method, um, as you guys know by now, um, it's one of my favorite pastimes to try and find Jungian symbolism in horror films. Which is more or less, I think, impossible to do with with Cronenberg. He's he he might be the most Freudian filmmaker on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and if I can, well, it's it. I mean, it, it's okay, all yeah. it's all about the body. Okay. It is all about yeah mm-hmm. being a slave to the body's urges, no matter how mm-hmm. self destructive they might be. <laughs> um, if there's any if there's any possible Jungian interpretation I could make of the body horror stuff. It could be that um, they're told from the point of view of the ego um, in the face of like confronting Ooh. the unconscious and awesome. being pulled to change by the unconscious and being kind of dragged kicking and screaming into a new way of thought. Hmm. Um, which again goes back to the you'll enjoy it once it's in metaphor. Um, but, you know, I mean, perhaps maybe when you get there, maybe the new flesh isn't all that bad. It might be a rough transition we never really get to see it at the end of this one, mainly because I think uh, the effects didn't work very well. I think he had planned to shoot a uh, new flesh orgy sequence <gasps> at the very, very end, but oh uh, my God. They, just, they just couldn't pull wow. it off. Oh. oh, yeah, in this one, right? Yeah, yeah well, it was going to be a threesome, <laughs> and, and they were all going to have body slits, and, and yeah, they, they were out of time, and Debbie Harry had this really bad flu. And guns. And it just didn't happen. Oh, wow. 
and uh, we we don't want to let the dancing Hitler go by, right? That, that <laughs> happens. <laughs> what else do you do with a dancing Hitler except let it go? Yeah. <laughs> Just let him dance, baby. <laughs> Hitlerina. Did I miss that? Seriously, was there a dancing Hitler? It's the poster? Oh yeah, behind the was. I what the fuck? Oh yeah, it's like Hitler in a pink ballet. Okay, okay everybody, you, rewind <laughs> with us so that I can watch. He's got you looking at the breathing videotape on one side of the screen, and on the other side of the screen, it's Hitler as a ballerina. I am apparently obsessed with breathing videotapes. So I didn't <laughs> that. Yeah, it's like Hitler's a ballerina on stilts. It's like, it's like uh, <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> but um, tell us about your. It's going to a little weird bit of branding. Yeah. <laughs> you shoot your eye out. Um, what was I going to say? This is such a great... Wow. What else has this guy been in? The uh, professor... So they said that he was a comedian, uh, mainly a comedian in Canada, <laughs> but he really liked his... Cronenberg liked his look and his voice and thought if you put a mustache on him, he could be... <laughs> Pretty insidious. Wow. Or I guess it was a connection too that he also looked like McLuhan or, or had that same, carried himself the same way as McLuhan. So I think Cronenberg told um, James Woods that a lot of his ideas do come from dreams. Well, I, I didn't mm-hmm. see any of that in the interviews, mm-hmm. but I guess he had told James Woods that, and he did. I he did mention that that, uh, that uh, Shivers came from a dream that he had of a spider that like lived in a woman's mouth and would come out at night mm. and move all around, and then go back in it, you know, during the day. It was part of her. That's pretty amazing. Oh, but something That's about the so body horror that I thought was interesting. There was a um, he mentioned it briefly in an interview, and it, and it didn't go into detail. But I guess his I think both of his parents, who, whom he loved very much, died. It sounded like when he was pretty young, but his father died from this, from a weird degenerative disease where um, his body stopped making calcium, so his wow. bones became very brittle. They were so brittle, like if he turned over in bed, his ribs would crack. Oh, oh my god! Oof. So the whole, I mean, so oh. his whole Cartesian thing of the mind-body split. I think really, I think it's easy to see it kind of starting there. Yes, <laughs> you know, have, having a functional mind and you know living living your life to the end with a functional mind, but having the body you know betray you. Hmm. Um, okay, just so you all know, that's I'm such about a great to effect. Start Every part of the TV here. is yes. <laughs> way ahead of you. Sorry, Damon. <laughs> it's a uh, I can't let the scene. I'm pass. in the room with you guys, <laughs> and neither of you have your hand on your dicks. I am really disappointed. I'm just that good. I mean, so I full of shit. I already finished. Yeah. One of the advantages of being on Skype. <laughs> now that uh, that TV screen material back there during the uh, the French kiss sequence was uh, made out of dental dam material, and that just seems very very appropriate to me. Oh no! Oh wow! Yeah, and it looks so good. That works so well. Especially wow. back then, that must have just really kind of knocked people out. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, such good special effects. Yeah, there's there's one or two kind of eh effects in here, but eh. you can't have everything. Eh, I don't know. 
Like what? Oh, we'll 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 we'll, we'll show them. We'll get okay. To so yeah. far, they've been good. Yeah, I've definitely. seen this a, quite a few times, and nothing has struck me as particularly hokey. But I think that might be suspension of disbelief. We're also. I mean, I'm. Well, speaking for myself, I'm mm-hmm. definitely of that age, and I'm just always more fond of something made of rubber that's actually there. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> have to say my my current Cronenberg fascination I think comes from I had never I realized when I watched this last week and then I watched an interview that was on there and I realized I'd never seen him interviewed um, oh. and I just kind of fell in love with the guy right I love the way he talks yeah. I love his approach it's I, I love how together he is for someone who has such weird bizarre ideas He's sexy how too. practically just yeah saying minded he yeah. is and and his talk for just his love of craft and yeah it, and so relaxed yeah know? yeah so just the egotistical thing isn't really there you know i mean he knows he's the shit but yeah he's great yeah it's been great reading reading the interviews so i definitely recommend if you guys haven't read it um mm-hmm. uh, cronenberg on cronenberg which was a favor and favor book uh, from that only goes up to Naked Lunch in ninety two. Did you just say the, uh, Naked Lunch? Oh, I did. I think naked. <laughs> it's all naked. <laughs> that lunch is naked. anyway. Sorry, please continue. And then the other one is um, it's just called David Cronenberg, and it's interviews with uh, Serge Grunberg, and it goes up to um, let me see where does it go up to. goes up to a history of violence mm. and that one's really good so i guess this, oh, this so good. interviewer is the only one he's let into his house so it's somebody he really trusts so he mm-hmm. really gets into detail about um craft in his in his life huh. yeah there's another one too called the philosophy of david cronenberg which um i peeked a little bit into online and i, I definitely want to read the whole thing if i can find is that it. newer or older i believe it's newer don't quote me on that or you can if you want to but but they actually, um, in the snippets that I read, they um, mentioned uh, the guy that you talked about the, for the last commentary that we did for It Follows, uh, Noel, Noel Carroll and his philosophy uh-huh. of horror. And also, somebody else who I was really intrigued by. What was her name? Give me one second. I'm sorry. Carolyn Korsmeyer. Um and where Noel, Noel Carroll had the art horror philosophy, she had the philosophy of terrible beauty. Mm. Um, and in the book, uh, The Philosophy of David Cronenberg, the author says, uh, regarding Carolyn Korsmeyer, beauty has to do with the moral insights gained by contemplating a horrible truth, as well as with the presentation of the insight. It's dark in here. I'm trying to read, sorry. The presentation of... Uh, the insights within a medium that enables us to appreciate the insight rather than turn away from it. Mm. Mm. Which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Definitely made me think of uh, Bosch and Giger and uh, David Lynch, of course, too. Mm. Yeah. One of the quotes I've wrote down from Cronenberg is said, horror films are art, that they're confrontational and make you confront your own aspects of life. So the confrontational nature from it. And, and that's what, I mean, makes him, I think, a singular artist, just that he doesn't turn away from it. 
and um you know what, what you're talking about ron just his uh, just the strength of character you know that he's able, been able to maintain and i think a lot of that's been because he's been out of yeah. the, the influence of hollywood yeah that must be part of the reason he's so consistent he has a philosophy and that's what makes him dangerous exactly that's <laughs> <laughs> such a great line Yeah, and this is like the moment where if, if you, if you thought, yeah, this you thought the movie was going to go back on track. and <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Things aren't going to work out so well for this guy. Just saying. This is amazing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, and yeah, it's... The, mean, his obedience yeah. to the, the impulse, the choices too. too like your first thought crazy. seeing a vagina sprouting in your stomach mm. is... I want to stick a gun in that. I want to yeah. see how far the gun will go. Well, it's well, it's, we it's an stick- uncontrollable <laughs> impulse. It's it's like he it he's is, obedient it is. to it's it. He can't that only that gun will resist it. it. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. We pretty much all want to stick our gun oh in a vagina. Don't we? There's there's the first kind of wonky effect there. That right yeah, that's what you guys keep yeah. saying it's a vagina, and yeah, it's vaginal, but it's also very wound like. Yeah, like it's it's not. It's it, it looks really like torn up and and raw and irritated. Holy shit. I don't know, maybe it just has a yeast infection or something, but <laughs> I was going to try to make a joke about head cleaner, but Huh? Oh, oh back in the VHS days. Nap nap nap. And that right arm there, that was the first kind of wobbly Rick Baker effect when he had it lodged in there. It was kind of spindly mm. and kind of discolored. Mm. Oh. But eh, what are you going to do? Didn't and those notice? effects were much less obvious on crappy VHS yes. tapes. Yeah. 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 Oh, there's Hitler, Hitler and Stiltz. Ah, thank you. Uh, thank you. That's my, oh. You guys are very observant. <laughs> is it Stiltz or is he on skis? It's like, yeah, I can't, I'm not sure. It looks kind of like skis. He's like he's jumping in the air on skis in a tutu. <laughs> now, okay, so in terms of like oh, plot structure, is this a screenwriting faux pas to introduce a new character forty-five minutes into the movie? That's one of the things that feels a little wonky to me. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so because he's deep, deep, deep inside a dream. Here, he's gone through several different levels. You know, you want to talk about Inception mm. and where they failed. <laughs> You know, there there is an element of that to this film that he just keeps going through all of these layers until his consciousness is. I don't know. But I think it, I think it is interesting. It Willie, to your point, and not the character so much as just the conspiracy to you know to. I mean, here in a little bit when they get more into the whole conspiracy, that that becomes a thing and then gets backed away from you know so readily. I I don't know. It's um. Hmm. It does feel a little arbitrary to me. It doesn't. Mm. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. But I, I do oh, agree yeah. with you that there's arbitrary elements to to the script. Yeah, I get that. It just seems but, well, but where they're on his journey. It but. Kind of I think has it works to be, though. though. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, it is. It is a dream, or or you can't, you can't tell a story so. like yeah, this. exactly. Yeah, the whole thing is that the the audience have to be, has to be kept off balance the uh-huh. entire time. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And dreams and, are arbitrary. Yeah, and you were talking about Inception. I mean, you know, mm. it, which is a brilliant movie. Mm. Uh, but 
there's brilliant there's, parts there's, of there's it. Like a, there's a linear quality to everything, yeah. even even the dreams. Yeah. And the dreams have function and purpose. And, you know, if, if you could, like, look at anything as a weakness of that movie, that's probably it. You know, the fact that, you know, that the dreams are portrayed as linear. They're too structured. Yeah. I know I said it sucked. I, I was being a little strong there. There's a lot of things I liked about it, but... More great branding. I didn't appreciate mm-hmm. that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't appreciate the linear quality of it so yeah, much. Dream, dreams are not that obvious. That's yeah, for sure. yeah. And it, I mean, it's an like action an film. Or uh, Existence, which is you more about to video be, games. Sorry. Oh, sorry. It's an action film. You want it to be freakier. Yeah. You know, than than an action film. You want it to feel more like a, a dream film, and it tips the scale into action too much for me. Totally. Whereas yeah, ex- this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh no. Existence. Gonna, oh yeah. Well, while well, being a movie about video games yeah. is actually much, much more competent at capturing real dream imagery than Inception was. Yeah. Uh, and speaking about Inception, but in regards to this movie, it mm-hmm. just seems like. He's going down the rabbit hole uh-huh. and he's getting further and further in. We just watched him like put his arm inside of his body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so him meeting new people is like, that's where he's going. <laughs> he has to go further and further down and like further and further into himself to get to the like, these glasses, underground. Though, that's place. where he really loses it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now we can and really see things as they really are with these glasses. <laughs> Good Obey. Lord. Marry and reproduce. They live. Yeah, talk about irresistible impulses. You'd have to be under some kind of spell to put those those on. I would totally put those on. I'd be like, these are yeah, stupid. but you would rock them. them. <laughs> I would be like being silly that I put them on, though. Yeah, he's very serious. You'd be in a, in a drag character or something. The, the lines of this this optometrist. The machinery you're wearing is too much for the shape of your face. Try something more spidery. Ooh, <laughs> it's just <laughs> ooh. Anyway, yeah, Davis, as you were saying, it's kind of like once he shoves a gun inside of his vagina tummy, all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense <laughs> that he's like going to meet weird people and yeah. he's going to get this cryptic way of finding further and further down into this web of stuff Yeah, that he's involved in. Well put. So I love his backroom science things he does, too. He does an existence, too, you know, at the gas station and putting like... Mm. In these dirty back rooms, mm. you know, you have the high science. Yeah. yeah, yeah, dirty science. That is something I like so much about the fusion of um, technology and the body in this is that it's pretty messy compared to. I mean, you, you know, it's it's this imagination of the future and the fusion of technology and the body, which is really happening. But it's so much like uh, more visceral. Yeah. Uh, they, I think he's saying, crea- you know, that creative uh, fact is messy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and regenerating or reinventing ourselves. You know, it's a messy, messy business. Yeah. A good companion uh, movie to this is uh crash. I don't know if anybody has seen that. Love oh it, yeah. Uh, Love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really interesting because it was based on, um, jg ballard who had like a lifelong machine fetish um after watching uh the kamikaze fighters uh during world war ii which he viewed as kind of like this melding of man and machine as they'd go you know diving to their deaths Um, 
and after that he was just transfixed with like you know any any fusion of you know machine and and mutilation uh, he was just a uh, totally obsessive about it and and david cronenberg was just the perfect person to bring it to, him, to yeah, the yeah. <laughs> pretty much it was a match made in heaven and by but, the way um, just to be clear damon's not talking about the crash that, oh. that won an oscar or something no, i'm talking about Matt oh Dillon, my the god Matt crash yeah oh 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 you were talking about that crash no, I am talking oh, about Matt oh crash. okay <laughs> <laughs> was that directed by cronenberg Actually, For some reason, it was, I um, thought it was like no, it was no, it was a Burt Reynolds, oh, Burt Reynolds crash. Burt Reynolds directed it. He was a stock car driver, <laughs> hard drinking stock car driver. <laughs> oh, and he became one with the car at the end. The that's right. That <laughs> came up with uh, virtual reality here, you know, about twenty years early. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> <sighs> And that's actually David Cronenberg so sitting in the chair because uh, yeah. James Woods was too paranoid to put that thing on his head. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he went a little bit method on this film. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I, to the best of my knowledge, Cronenberg has never gone on the record as being into kinky sex. But, uh, you know, Tarantino's never gone on record as having a foot fetish either. So. <laughs> yeah, no, actually he did. I just I was just reading something that he kind of admitted to being a little turned down, turned on by um, Sadomasochist imagery a little bit. He, he was talking, it was in reference to, um, uh, like, the, P- the PC movement and certainly, you know, women's groups being upset about it, some of the things in his movies. Hmm. And just saying that he's coming from it, you know, as a, as a male artist, and what he's presenting is, you know, true to him. And he's whatever, however he presents these things, or he's gonna he's gonna upset somebody. Yeah, yeah, because they're so gross. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and and, and, and because out. he doesn't hold himself back, and maybe also, uh, yeah, the uh, the specific gender dynamic. Of, of being a guy and approaching it from that point of view, especially if you're a dom or a sadist, can be very loaded. Mm-hmm. Whoa. And here's something you've never seen before. Uh, oh, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> Love it. And that set. That <laughs> yeah. set. Yeah. Ugh. That set. So talk about that Freudian <laughs> womb. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, with the slaughterhouse drain for a floor. <laughs> So I couldn't tell if, if uh, in that first video transmission from Barry Convex, if he was standing in front of that wall or not. It was the same. Yeah, color. they were. Okay. Interesting set design too. They were saying that uh, that orange is, you know, distur- you know, like a super disturbing color, you know, for prisoners or mm-hmm. um, for anybody really. You know, that kind it's of agitating. Orange. Yeah. Second chakra, too. It's the color of the second chakra, which is sex and power. Mm, awesome. Yep.
So one, one thing I, I find interesting about Cronenberg is just his, um, you know, his attack of, or his use of just radical metaphor, like how he's not afraid of the obvious metaphor, yeah. you know, which could be good or bad, I guess, depending on how you look at it. But I, I see it as kind of like a bravery in, in his imagery. Mm-hmm. So wait, what obvious metaphor did I just miss? Oh, so I was just his metaphors in general. I mean, with the names and just, you know, the, the, the sticking a gun slit, into a stomach just, vagina. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so one of the quotes that I, that I read of him talking about his obsession with metaphor was for me, it's the creation of imagery, monstrous imagery. I have to make the word be flesh because I can't photograph the word. I have to create the metaphors myself. Huh. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, while I was doing, some of that Noel Carroll research, um, aside from the art horror concepts and uh, this concept of disgust and all that, um, he he mentioned um, fusion monsters versus fission monsters. I don't know if you uh, read any of that, Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, but fission monsters would be, I guess, like an individual with multiple personalities, uh, which is where like werewolves and the Jekyll Hyde kind of thing comes in. Mm-hmm. And then fusion monsters are kind of hybrids of a lot of external influences. And that definitely applies to most Cronenberg, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think he really feels, you know, that's where the horror is, obviously, you know, if it's, if it's within you. So this idea of madness too, the feeling of, or the, the, sense of people just being aware that they're hallucinating and and their own minds are out of control and they're losing their shit that in and of itself is really scary Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's the only thing worse than losing control of your body is yeah losing, losing control, control of your mind. mind. So I think it's yeah, and he plays fear. with both in this. You know, I can't I can't decide which one I would find worse. Mm. Well, I I think in Cron- Cronenberg's world they'd be combined. <laughs> Always, you know, mm-hmm. losing your mind would immediately mean. hallucinating the body being an extension of the mind in some Mm -hmm. way yeah hallucinating something about the body and that's the tagline i guess first it controls your mind then it destroys your body oh is it Uh huh Hmm. nice You know, it was about 20 years. It took about 20 years for Cronenberg to make another truly mainstream movie after this. This was mainstream? Well, it, well no, no, because this was the same year that he he, uh, he also did The Dead Zone. Um, <sighs> the Dead Zone was pretty mainstream for him. Yeah, that's uh, true. The Fly was a pretty big hit for him, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yep. Look at The Fly. Yeah, the Fly wasn't true. really mainstream. It was pretty. It was pretty out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's his, it that's got a lot of recognition. Picture, 
Sorry. Oh, I guess I wasn't. Yeah, had a, I was thinking about a different definition of mainstream. That was like mm-hmm. a Fox movie, so I just assumed I was calling it mainstream. Well, it it was widely recognized. Lots yeah, I guess at that point the, the mainstream had, had diverged enough to <laughs> kind of be able to include gross shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> the Fly is also a movie that like my dad would have watched. My dad's not going to sit down and watch Videodrome, but he probably <laughs> watched The Fly be remade with Jeff Goldblum in yeah. it. Like yeah. he wouldn't this would be beyond. He would not be sitting here watching yeah. this weird shit yeah <laughs> it's like when my mom rented pink flamingos because she had oh, seen no. hairspray and liked it oh no <laughs> <laughs> sure she's not the only one who did that i know they're <laughs> <laughs> never gonna see a singing asshole like that ever again except maybe in a cronenberg film <laughs> right but it would be like in the middle of your scalp or something <laughs> instead of your actual ass. <laughs> this is the wonderful revelation of the conspiracy and how far it goes. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... When I... Yeah, I'm not talking shit by any means, but, you know, I think the way that these twists are kind of laid out, they're almost like, like if you have an amnesia plot, you can really, the plot can be anything, uh, uh-huh. you know, now it's this, now it's this, uh-huh. or whatever, and I think all these things are, are really cool, but um, I think for me, like in, a, in in existence, maybe watching it a second or third time, you can see hints and foreshadowing of what's going to happen earlier on in the mm. film. And maybe that's mm-hmm. what's missing from this for me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. You're on that journey with him in this, in a, in a really, uh, confusing way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems you have to kind of get to this point where mm-hmm. I don't know what the, what the other guy, the other guy who just said like, why are you watching this? It's so fucked yeah. up. Why are you watching this stuff anyway? Yeah. And he's like making the stuff and him and, and James Woods are like the same thing. Like James Woods is looking for something fucked up to show a bunch of people. He's going to get people hooked on this. Just like everybody else. That was his plan was to like get it so he could show it to other people. Mm-hmm. And, and get them great- to watch his thing. So they're both what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. are you fucked up because you wanted to see something like this? Or am I fucked up for having made this thing? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's no, like, it's it's a- not, whose fault is it? Is it the voyeur, the exhibitionist's fault for doing the thing? Totally, totally. Mm-hmm. And it's a great irony, too, because like the um, Barry Convex and his people are you know, trying to purge North America of the deviants or whatever, but they have to do it by making the kind of art they would consume and killing them. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's like no one gets off. Everybody's dirty by the end of it. <coughs> on some level, everybody involved in this, even the, the other guy uh, knew that it was gross and let James Wood watch it also. <laughs> so I love that his hair gets blown back. It's so eighties. Yeah. Again, <laughs> the love there's story no begins. foreshadowing for that. <laughs> Possessed by Stevie Nicks. <laughs> That is just a really infected vagina, you guys. I'm just saying. I did learn that that's actually a Betamax. It's actually, like a bigger for a normal vagina, it would look uh, infected. But for right. a stomach vagina, it's uh, perfectly healthy looking. You know what? You're right, actually. Yeah. 
That's in fairly good yeah, condition the for a stomach were, vagina. We're a little too big <laughs> for for James Woods' slit, so they had to go beta. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah, you you see on a beta tape, you see the the tape part bigger even though the the cartridge is smaller. Uh, um so uh, it's actually you to know see he, what it is. Yeah, it was to make he predicted it so front loader VCRs there too because oh. he, he does have a vagina <laughs> on the top of his head popping out. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> so i think it was the dp was talking about he heard um james wood talking to debbie harry at this point saying he felt like he was no longer acting he was just kind of the the bearer of the the slit and then she told him now you know how now, now you know what it feels like yeah thank you <laughs> nice <laughs> nice job debbie harry Oh, there Ooh. it is. Maybe my keys are in is there. It, yeah, right? It must be in here somewhere. Oh, hold on. Oh, no, those are cough drops. Okay, wait. And this is the other effect, I think. <laughs> oh, that's it's, my it's credit card. It's a little card. bit dodgy, but it's awesome. And what it, is, it, oh, his the way his yeah. hand fuses into it. Oh, yeah. And I don't think little, there's any part of that that's not awesome. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, just, I agree. It just looks a little, yeah. It's, it a, it's a little waxy, right. but I don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't either. And it maybe yeah. suffers um, from... Uh, American Werewolf in London, oh, London God. syndrome that they just linger on it maybe a little too long. Yeah, uh, maybe a little too much light on it. Yeah, but I love that they yeah. switch to. But it's gross. Yeah, to this more this this shot here where it's actually you know attached to his real hand once it's in. Mm. This sells it a little bit more. Yeah, they should have had less mm. of that and a little more of this. <laughs> this. This one shot inspired like the entire Tetsuo series. Mm. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh. and the Na- National Rifle Association. Uh. Well, the focus yeah, on it growing into this thing, you know, it does sort of take you through how terrifying and excruciating that would be. It's totally yeah, you, Tetsuo. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's totally crossed over. Like, he's no way back now. Like, I don't think there was way back from that vagina belly, but, you know. <laughs> Pretty much. But you yeah. kind of are like, well, maybe if he stopped watching it, the vagina was so showing up. <laughs> it's, like, it's just a hallucination. But now it's like... So how do you guys feel about the um, the score? Uh, you know, this was a Howard Shore, asked, wasn't it? But I didn't oh, yeah. even notice it. Yeah, I I'm guess curious it's what you just think, that William, effective. About you and Ron, you music people. For me, um, it's it's fine. <laughs> it doesn't really. Not a whole lot of uh, Shore's music for Cronenberg's movies stand out to me. Um, mm-hmm. The Dead Zone has some has a pretty memorable main theme. Um, to me, Howard Shore is kind of one of the least ironic composers out there. Um, Wait, what do you yeah, mean by there's that? Actually, huh? What do you mean by ironic? Um, least ironic. The least ironic. It's, least ironic. It's just very... It's unselfconscious. It's tragic, you know? There, um, and also, yeah, the score for Videodrome has probably the least in terms of a memorable theme. Scanners has a pretty good one. Hmm. There's a, a little repeating motif that you can kind of hook onto, and there's not a whole lot of that going on in here. So it's very grave. Yeah. Yeah, I really didn't notice it much. Mm-hmm. I mean, the no. bits where it's kind of you know a little more blippy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. These undertones yeah. here like are pretty ominous. Yeah. 
Yeah, like but it's, just um, I hear watched a little bit it of, follows, um, and you guys, you know, we were all talking as much about, well, not as much about the soundtrack, but quite a lot about the soundtrack, and then to see something like Videodrome, and I forget there even is any kind of sound in it. Yeah, which is a testament, I, I, I think, to it. I think it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, may, maybe. Yeah, it makes it a little more interesting. I, I don't know. It's mm-hmm. just a different animal for sure. It's effective. It, it follows it so driving. So going yeah. back for a second to the guy who just got killed, I forget the character's name, um, but there were originally going to be six cancer gun deaths, and then he scaled it back to two, and then he decided to just kill that guy more conventionally because he felt like he was a good guy, not a bad guy. Mm. Um, and so it's just the bad, bad guy who gets the cancer gun. Mm. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I did not know that. Oh, just going back to the score real quick for a second. Um, in, in reading about it, it was interesting to me to just read about Cronenberg's process with Howard Schwartz. So he's worked with him on all of his films, and it's interesting he's worked with most of his team on all of his films. I think it's kind of how he's maintained. Um, I, I don't know, just kind of, kind of a singular voice. Yeah, you that know, consistency it's, again. Yeah. It's consistent. I think it allows him to attack you know, to attack each each film. He definitely talks about, you know, I mean, obviously each film he pushes himself a little bit more, goes in different directions. He, nev- he never really makes the same film twice. And I think having mm-hmm. that consistency of crew really helps him do that, you know, gives him the confidence and the, and the tools to do that. But, yeah, but back to, to this... Oh, go ahead. Oh, so, uh, I was just going to say, with the, the score, it was interesting to hear him talk about it, at how, he want, how he wants it to um, be a counterpoint. He doesn't really like it when it reinforces exactly what's going on on screen so much as it kind of hits other emotions mm-hmm. and kind of layers layers what's going on a little mm-hmm. bit more so it just seemed like a, a little bit different way of approach that um was interesting i don't know how effective it is I, i'm definitely going to pay more attention to it but it, well, it's not not the conventional the um, score kind of has the same vibe for me that like howard shore's uh score for silence of the lambs had mm-hmm. which to me in that one it, it felt I mean, it didn't feel like it. The score made it maybe feel less like a horror film, but still mm. was very, very serious. Yeah, you know, there's a seriousness yeah. to both of these scores. I think it's effective in that it's so much in the background, you don't even notice it. it seems like this is all about being visual. I mean, it's about video. It just makes me think it's all. It's just so yeah. visceral and yeah. visual. Yeah, that, that audio is not it's about it's about how you see seeing and perceiving things mm-hmm. that makes sense it is a lot about like i don't eye. know if that was purposeful or not because yeah. the soundtrack is like there's moments like you were saying dan like there are those like these like think the subtle background things and he's not like leading you to, to know what you're supposed to feel but you just kind of mm-hmm. feel creepy um it just really seems to be about visuals he's perception. in the churchy place right yeah and this is really churchy music some organ going on there. Yeah, I yeah. feel like he he really. I think I feel like he respects his his viewers. You know, to make mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of leaps. Yeah, I mean, he, he yeah really respects the intelligence of his viewers. Oh yeah. So they were talking about the first cut. Ooh, gross! Um, that they had made. They had done. They did a um, audience, you know, um, review of it down in Boston when they first cut it, and I guess he had cut it down to seventy five minutes, and nobody knew what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. So they had to recut it, but I still think it's super tight, and I think that Cronenberg uh, yeah. tends to cut his movies really tight in general. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, here he had a, a lot of trouble figuring out what to have on the other side of that paper. <laughs> and he went through a long process before he finally settled with this. One in doubt, go with Debbie Harry. Yeah. So how do you feel about, um, you know, we're talking about the sound. We're talking about the, the I'll, I'll wait till the scene's over. So that's a dental dam? That totally makes sense yeah, now that you said that. Great. Having catapulted <laughs> stuff across the dining hall with those things, you oh. could really. <laughs> <laughs> you did? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ooh, di- dick imagery. Yep. It was such yeah. an effective use of just very simple projecting an image onto it from the front, mm. you know, mm-hmm. it, where it's something that would now be done with CGI and would look like CGI. And it would look, that yeah, to me just like looked shit. a lot better than what they would do today with CGI. Uh-huh. uh-huh. It looks a lot more yeah, like real that. flesh. I agree. Is it, is that a generational thing? Do you, do you feel, do you feel like the youngsters feel the same way with you CGI know, that we do? Maybe it's because of my generation, but I can't imagine that, that it's just that. <laughs> you know, it's hard to say because you know? I think a lot of them don't see older movies probably. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Um, so it's really, they watch I remakes. can't imagine what the inside of their heads are like mm. regarding certain things because it's, I can't imagine not having seen the things I've seen and the progression I've seen. Yeah. It's very hard to pull myself out of that. Yeah. And then you realize, you know, people's knowledge of history gets pretty shady and shitty. And so there's a lot of people who probably have no idea even at this point when CGI really entered in. Yeah. You know, and mm. and the, sort of the history of special <laughs> effects, you know. I'm sure there's a lot of folks in our age range who aren't bothered by it in the slightest, who don't even notice, you know, and can't distinguish distinguish probably like film geeks in their teens and 20s do notice and do distinguish mm-hmm. you know so it might just be about geekery more than it is about age yeah, yeah. Hmm. well there's a lot that that enters in when you're when you're creating a practical effect like that that uh you won't see in cgi because it's all you know just somebody making drips and drabs in a digital palette. Mm. You're not going to see the glistening, you know, veins and, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to look as much like a, a gun penis. <laughs> right. Yeah. Look, yeah. And, yeah. And the excitement of the process that I think a lot of people get watching a movie thinking about, you know, somebody did that or that's a thing happening there or Cronenberg talking about how, as his progression as a filmmaker, it was he always wanted to be finding some new thing where he was able to actually figure out a way to realize this on screen that was challenging. And he talked about just being proud of a guy being thrown down a set of stairs in Rabid um, and cutting the scene together with the stuntman in such a way that you can't tell and pulling that off and how pleased he was by that. And, and now it's like when you can just basically realize anything on screen, it's... I think there's a whole mm. element of that that's mm. kind of removed. That might be part of the reason why Cronenberg seems to have moved away from, you know, this kind of special effects. He doesn't really that do special sense. effects anymore. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, and plus, you know, I mean... That's a good point. Gener- most of the time, like, yeah, like, another defense of practical effects, the actors 
you know, are in the room with it, and you can. Mm-hmm. It's very easy yeah. to tell that they're reacting to it, yeah, mm-hmm. and that they're working with it. Like, not to beat the fucking Star Wars prequel oh, I was God. Right going there. horse into the ground, but it's so fucking <laughs> obvious in yeah. every goddamn shot that yeah. they have no idea where they're supposed to be or what yeah. they're looking at, the environment they're moving through, well, yeah. or the fucking Yoda that they're talking to. It's yeah. Well, yeah. I- I mean, I'm sure that the kids in E.T. wouldn't have had the same performances that they'd been talking to some short dude in a totally. green suit with ping pong balls on yep. it. You know, it's not, well, and you it's see not the same experience. Mm-hmm. Now that, you know, J.J. Abrams, uh, mm-hmm. continuing Star Wars, you have someone who's very pointedly backlashing against that mm-hmm. um, and does everything he possibly can with practical effects. He made a real droid. Yeah. <laughs> um, and lots of so lots of things. I mean, that. just in the Star Trek movies, he did watching how some of the effects were done. They were done very simply and elegantly, mm-hmm. um, and anywhere he could, basically, he did it mm-hmm. practical. And then yeah. you know, you use, you know, I think CGI used well and in places where it's good mm-hmm. is a great thing. It's another mm-hmm. tool, but yep. doing a Lucas jack off with it <laughs> is. Yeah. lousy especially yeah. because a few years later it's just going to look dated anyway it's supposed to enhance the art it's not supposed to be the art you know every tuesday afternoon i lure a bunch of neighborhood kids down in my basement and i make them watch uh, a new hitchcock film and, uh, and i ask them afterwards you know if they you know what they thought about it and the ones who can still talk or uh they tell me that they you know they find it cheesy because you know hitchcock didn't use cgi he used you know animated birds in some parts jimmy stewart's falling out of the window and you can see it's obviously a green screen Oh, wow. I put the tape back over their mouths, and then you know I come back and I trag. <laughs> it's very sad. Ah, sorry. Oh, that's great. Sorry, guys. Okay, now here's my other. My, it was a real nitpick. reaction. This is a, what? a World War Two, World War One, whatever style potato but, masher grenade yes. that's fused uh, to Harwin's hand here. Uh, and I have no idea what the fuck that is or what it looks like. Uh, Just use a real grenade shape and then the audience can relate to it and they understand true. why he blows up here. <clears throat> that's a good point. That would have been yeah, a better I, choice. I didn't understand exactly why his yeah. hand was that shape. Yeah, yeah. me neither. But it is a, it is I didn't a hand know grenade. what that was. Wah, wah, wah. I like it though. I, I mean, get it's it. gross and awesome. I mean, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's wonderfully gross. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this, this this confused me as a kid. Um, just the the um, subjective versus the objective, and what had happened there, and not realizing that it was, you know, he's going through his hallucinations, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, it was interesting to seeing the people's reaction on the street there. The people were just kind of going about their business. So obviously, that wall hadn't just been blown out, right? But he had somehow just walked through it. And there's, yeah, or yeah, came there's, out there's, another door. Or yeah, there, there's, there's no way to tell what's actually what's what's real and what's fantasy yeah. at this point. And the cancer gun here is a nice precursor to the uh, the bone gun that shoots teeth in Existence. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah, that was a brilliant prop that the. Uh... Oh man. So Cronenberg is and a see, huge today, those scholar would be CG of the Renaissance. And, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Dan. I totally walked on you. Oh, that's right. I was What'd just saying say? that Cronenberg's super. Um, he's a uh, scholar of the Renaissance. Like he's, he's super interested in that period.
I just came back from the bathroom and I noticed that everyone was really quiet for that scene. You guys were really into that, weren't you? That was a, an yeah. amazing dance number. Yeah. <laughs> that was some I Buzz really want to find out where they got the, the male leotards there. Cronenberg <laughs> on ice. Damon wants fantastic. one. Christmas is coming up, guys. <laughs> Christmas is coming up. <laughs> and coming up here is one of, far and away, my favorite Rick Baker effects ever. It's good. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> um, yes. Just wonderful. Yay. These are uh, little cancer puppets being manipulated <laughs> by guys under the floor. Oh, God. <laughs> little guys. Oh. Oh, wow. Who's the cutie? <laughs> oh, God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So great. Oh, Fucking, I, so there gross. were stills of that in Fangoria when I was like 14 <laughs> years old, and I was just stood there at the newsstand, just mesmerized for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even tell you. Yeah, the, the chest burster in Alien just looks so pedestrian compared to that. <laughs> <laughs> So I didn't realize the whole connection between Shivers and Alien and O'Bannon. I yeah, Alien would not exist without Shivers. Yeah, mm. I don't think I knew that. Wow, the whole wow. chest bursting scene. Oh, the, the oh. yeah, the things coming out. Dan O'Bannon did, admitted even that he. Oh yeah, well, he, he admitted he, he stole stuff. from everybody. Oh, yeah, excellent. Um, even even biology, there's a little. I think a grubworm beetle in there. Mm. There's a little it the terror from beyond space. Little Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Just another thing about Cronenberg, um, real quick before we finish up here, is I, I really thought it was interesting his whole um, science and art combination when, when he was younger, because he started off as a in the science department of his mm-hmm. college and then switched over to art. Oh, that makes sense. Like a year later, so yeah, and his mom was a was a um, musician and his dad had a bookstore you know it was just super cerebral and he was a journalist so he really has that left brain right brain mm-hmm. thing going on he's which is super interesting so balanced yeah does anybody know i'm kind of curious i mean he must have been fairly successful or his family had money because he made his first two underground movies with his own money and i mean he had to have some money to do that because he was shooting film. I mean, it, yeah. you know, they weren't big budget films by any means, but still, but still it was he film. had some money to work with. Yeah. He, he referred to himself as middle class. Huh. And I think he did get, um, I can't remember when the, the film fund money first started coming in, but I think he told them he was writing a book, or maybe that was the first money he had for the first film, was he, he told them he was writing a novel and got the money and then made the first film and then around that time the film fund actually 
activated and then he got some more money to make the second and i'm sure there were some creative shortcuts as well like stereo was shot without live sound right uh, both, yeah. both that and the the next what's the next one called them crimes of the future yeah they were both shot without sound For this uh, upcoming effect here, which was on the cover of that issue of Fangoria. Thank you, Fangoria. Um, <laughs> what year was that, Willie? I think I remember that. Uh, it had to have been 82 or 83. Yeah, I remember that cover. But he said, Cronenberg in the commentary says, uh, oh yeah, for this shot we used all kinds of things. We used real guts and pig guts and pig intestines. It's like, uh, David, those are all actually one thing. Yeah, <laughs> there was a slaughterhouse right like across the street or, or super close to where they were doing this wow. and they were wondering if they'd be able to get him to do it so they went over wondering if they were going to get chased away or whatever and they just said what they were doing what they wanted and the guys were like okay uh, yeah come back in like an hour <laughs> and oh I, I think they told them to bring a bunch of bags or whatever they had oh. but yeah and they just gave them like just all these like guts, guts or sheep guts or whatever they were yeah so they had a ton Great, um, and they said it. Um, the but they got them like a week before, so these had been sitting for like Ooh. a week. Rotting. Oh, so it was just unbelievably rancid. Oh, and the first shot didn't work right, <sighs> so they had to do it twice with oh all of this massive stench in there. It was just a horrific set. <laughs> wow, and it was like the day before Christmas Eve, if it wasn't actually Christmas really? Eve, right? Yeah, because oh, they're right great. down to the wire. Um, oh. And they set Christmas as their absolute Here's deadline to be finished with Christmas the shoot. Cookies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nasty. You know, again, it's the sort of the real, live, visceral component of interacting with this thing that's three-dimensional. You can see it and you can also smell it. Yeah. That's very important. Yeah. Yeah, so the idea here was that, you know, he would he, he gets shown how to shoot himself and then he shoots himself and then he's oh. in the red room with her and it it devolves into that threesome with the slits and oh. basically they live happily ever after. Oh. So yeah, this is a much more bleak ending without yeah. that. Yeah. Mm. Too bad she had the flu. In my more yeah. in my more fanciful moments, I like to think that Existence is actually the sequel to Videodrome, and I could see that. That's like the whole new flesh afterlife going on there. I could see that because there is there there is that revolution mm-hmm. theme in both of them, and this is TV, mm-hmm. and Existence is video games. Lots of protagonists Long committing suicide in Cronenberg The films. new flesh. Yeah. Pow. Yeah, that's true. <sighs> so good. Oh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Orange credits. They want you leaving feeling very <sighs> uncomfortable. Yes. Mm. James mm. Woods is such a great actor. He, he totally believes everything he says in that movie. Yeah. And you can see it in his eyes. In his dead, dead eyes. Yeah, he was a really good choice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> He was. Cronenberg talked, talked about um, you know, really being happy. One of the first like really dynamic relationships he had with an actor, you know, adding a lot to, mm-hmm. to the character and the part, and um, mm-hmm. really felt like he was an intellectual yeah. James uh, actor that 
is he's really appealing mm-hmm. and and yet he's really you know you c- he's slimy <laughs> or at least he plays slimy really well he definitely gives off that 80s cocaine vibe yeah oh yeah this the the scene at the very beginning when he's he's like i want it to be tough <laughs> yeah it's just like the douchiest of the douchey <laughs> David Chud, one of the drivers. So, Debbie Harry, she didn't get a lot of roles after this, did she? Like, this was... Did she want to? I don't know. If yeah. She maybe she just... She did it once and was like, yeah, it's all right. I can't uh, think of anything else that she's been in personally. She, she was, was in so the Tales from the Dark Side movie. Oh, ah, thank you. That's right. Yep. But she was just so great in this. And she was in Scarface. Was she? Oh, yeah? Yeah. I need huh? to see that again. Huh. Let's see. I'm trying to remember. All I can think about is blood and cocaine when I think of Scarface. I can't remember who was in it. <laughs> <laughs> and fuck. Don't forget the word fuck. <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck. Fuckity fuck. Have, have we all seen the fuck edit? Oh, yeah. Of Scarface. <gasps> I don't know if I have actually. Somebody edited just all of the fucks and Star Scarface together all in a <laughs> row, great. and it's wonderful. It's like an hour long, right? Uh, it's pretty long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was fun, you guys. Definitely. Yes. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. And uh, thanks out there for listening, if you are. And uh, we'll be doing this again. Sometime next year, I'm sure. Oh, that's crazy. Yes. All right. Farewell 2015. Long Ciao, live the new flesh. Bye. Long live the new flesh. Long says. live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Long Whatever. live the new, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs>